welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week, I'd like you to think of me as your divine leader. Yeah, we're talking cults. Our guest is Craig DeLuey, the author of new novel, The Children of Red Peak. It deals with the aftermath of an end-of-days cult following a small group of survivors from childhood into adulthood as they try to recall what happened that night in the desert years ago and whether something still lurks there waiting for them to come home. As you'll hear, Craig and I get into some pretty weighty issues. We discuss the nature of faith, for example, you know, that just that little topic. We talk about the difference between religion and cult and, and where the line lies between them. And we talk about the spiritual nature of music and how to evoke that euphoria in prose. This one does get deep, but look at the episode title. We also talk about sticking arms in shredders, so I do make sure the horror is always well served. So yeah, gather round, children. Let's head to the Californian desert and the mountain that's calling us to the next life. Let's talk scared. Hi, Craig. Uh, thanks for being our guest this week. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. And where do we find you today? Where are we speaking to you from? I am speaking to you from Calgary, Alberta, in the country of Canada. The last bastion of civilization in the Western world, as I like to call it. <laughs> well, well, yeah, so we're told. I'm from the uh, States originally. I, I'm a New Yorker and uh, moved here uh, in 2003. Oh, okay, okay. I... Uh, yeah, I adore Canada. I spent I spent sort of six months living in British Columbia, doing um, a lot of backpacking and working on farms, and just I, I intend to live there one day. Wonderful place. So you're here with us today to discuss your new novel, The Children of Red Peak. It was published on November eighteenth uh, by Red Hook Books. What can you tell us about it to get the ball rolling? I'd be happy to describe it. Uh, the Children of Red Peak, it, it's a psychological and supernatural horror story. It's cosmic horror as well. It's about a group of people who grew up in and survived the horrific last days of an apocalyptic cult. So now years, it's years later. Uh, the trauma of what they experienced never feels far behind them. When uh, one of them uh, commits suicide, the rest reunite to confront their past and share their memories of what happened, uh, trying to figure out why did their families go down such a dark road? What really happened on that last night? What did they actually see? And this will bring them back to Red Peak, uh, where, uh, where everything will be revealed. Uh, so it's a story told along two timelines. Uh, one is the present where we see these people, uh, uh, these survivors as adults, coping with the trauma of what they experienced long ago and struggling with this mystery of what they experienced. And so it's really about memory and, and, and loss and trauma in that storyline, which will bring them back to Red Peak to solve the mystery. And then the other timeline is them as children growing up in this cult where it didn't really start out as a cult. It started, it was a religious group that lived off the grid and they were trying to live a solid and pure Christian life, lifestyle, and then they end up becoming, transforming into a cult due to an outside influence that brings them to Red Peak, where everything sort of goes to hell. I always like to start with a, with a broad question, but 
today I want to start with quite a specific question because it's just something that I, I, I'm curious to know. So the way you described that kind of, you know, um, dual timeline and the idea of memory and a group regathering to deal with trauma, I've got to ask, were you all inspired by the recent adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House? Oh, sure, absolutely. Along with other influences, uh, Stephen King's It, uh, Keel and Patrick Burke's Kin uh, was probably the first. I, I find that with when you go and dive into a genre and you want to write something, uh, you end up dealing with tropes. And many of these tropes are so well-worn now. So I tend to find I enjoy stories that either turn the trope on its head or examine its consequences. And so the, I wanted to write a story about a cult that did both. And so with uh, The Haunting of Hill House, I love the idea of people experience something and then years later, they're still coping with it and they're reflecting upon it. Uh, in Kin, uh, Keel and Patrick Burke did a fantastic job examining a really, a really out there trope, which is the uh, something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where you have this di- really deranged and diabolical cannibal family uh, living in a remote rural area, and a group of backpacking college students runs into them, and then you have the final girl. She gets away. That story examines what happens after. I absolutely loved that approach because. Uh, horror trauma is such an integral part of horror. It's really how many of us engage with real life horrors. Uh, something terrible happens in our lives and we find ourselves dealing with it. It echoes through our entire lives. We find ourselves dealing with it for, for, for many years and end up having to deal with coping mechanisms. And so that trauma of something that already happened is such a deep wellspring of emotion that I thought, I thought it was just perfect to apply to a, a story about a cult. And so I wanted to examine the, uh, the consequences of, of being in a cult and now being a survivor of it. The other thing I wanted to do was turn the trope on its head. Uh, many people see cults as diabolical organizations. Uh, they think of Helter Skelter, the Manson family, Jim Jones, some guy with crazy eyes. And he's mesmerized a bunch of people to turn them into human robots that are now doing anything he commands uh, and, you, and, and evil. And I wanted to sort of portray the cult uh, idea of the cult more realistically, which is that these are typically alt- alternative religious groups. They, they're groups founded around some common belief or ideology Yes, they tend to have a charismatic leader. They tend to love bomb their new members. And, but people don't, aren't broken so much or hypnotized by them as these are just people going through a difficult time. They're people who are looking for a, who, who are overwhelmed by a chaotic world and they're looking for a very simple worldview that makes sense. And they're attracted to these groups. They're love-bombed. They find family. They find belonging. They find love there. And they find belief. What tends to make these groups what we consider a cult, something bad, is in the level of harm they do to their members or to their community. So the Manson family, definitely a cult because the members went out and killed people. 
but there are thousands of organizations like this where there's varying levels of harm and so varying levels of whether it's a cult or not. Um, a lot of these groups will do mental conditioning. They'll take everything from you and they'll make you completely emotionally and mentally dependent on the group. Uh, but others are more, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you have a political belief system. You have a, a re- simple religious belief system or an alternative re- uh, that may be conventional or alternative. And so I found this really interesting that you have cults on this spectrum all the way from a conventional religion or, or political party all the way to the Manson family. And I wanted to show that this is a spectrum, not two sides of a coin. And I wanted to show a group sort of slide from one part of the spectrum to the other due to an outside influence that appeals to their core belief system and says, okay, now that you believe this, here's your, you're on the slippery slope now, we're going to take you to the next level. And they just, they just fall down that slope at, right towards you know, the Manson family. So I'm assuming you did a lot of research into cults for this. Was the family of the living spirit, which is the the group in, in your novel, was that based on any cult in particular? No, not at all. I, I did do a lot of reading and research about individual cults, but to learn about certain types of, of what happened to them. I was I was very interested, not so much in all the grisly stuff, but more in that transition between we all believe this now we're going to do something horrible what was that what was that turning point and how did we get from point a to point b so i i did do a lot of investigation of individual cults to try and find those turning points but really what i was interested in with my research was generally the psychology involved in how does someone go from being a bank teller uh, to get stripping themselves of everything and and stripping their identity and surrendering themselves utterly and completely to a group that now whose leader now completely dominates everything they do and everything they think and I was fascinated with that psychology I was fascinated with the psychology of how you can have someone in a group like this take belief to a an action that could be horrible. And I was also interested in the psychology of how do you get out of this and how do you stay out of it? Because a lot of times it's so ingrained, the mental conditioning is so deep that even if you escape the cult, the cult doesn't really leave you. And, and that can be permanent. You, it's almost like an addiction. You're dealing with an addiction. And so I was really fascinated with the psychology and found that really, um, again, fertile ground for horror, because I think that a lot of the best horror is found not so much in uh, something horrible happening, but in, in the mentality behind it and how that mentality is common to all humans. Obviously, the, the importance of psychology comes out both in the, in, the, in the narrative itself and in the characterization, because you give your characters, you know, the, the, the adult children, you give them very clearly defined career paths um, as adults. So Beth is a psychologist. David actually helps people to escape from cults by 
recontextualizing the thinking about it and and deacon is a musician mm-hmm. why did you give them those specific jobs because they for me that they actually perform a function in the story what i wanted to do with them was as children you see they have certain personal dominant personality traits and then as adults we see them with those person those dominant personality traits run amok as a co- to help them cope with the trauma that they experienced. So David was always very cautious as a child because of the things that were happening to him. His, uh, he had fa- family turmoil that caused his mother to take him and his sister to go live in this religious commune. So he's going through a lot and he's finding himself withdrawing a lot as a result of that and very shy and very, uh, he likes to hide and where he can feel safe. And as a child, that's a very normal thing. But as an adult, it, that coping mechanism is now run amok, and he buries himself and from the past and hides himself from the past, and he constantly feels like he's running. And it ends up affecting his family life, where his family was a sanctuary, and now it's becoming something he has to hide from as well, because he just can't handle any, anything. With Deacon, we see that as a child, he was uh, very musically inclined. And then in the aftermath of all the horrible finish to the family of the living spirit, he's one of the few survivors. He's now in an institution and the therapist uses poetry therapy with him, which he finds so such a great way to both escape and escape what happened to him by re-experiencing the pain of it. And he becomes addicted to the pain of it. And so he becomes a musician constantly singing about these things to relive that night and the, and the, the sadness and the loss that he experiences. He, flog, he self-flogs himself. And then with Beth, we find, you know, it's the, it's the old canard about the psychologist becomes a psychologist to find out what's wrong with themselves. Um, he, he does. She does the exact same thing. Uh, she's now a psychologist to have control over everything in her life. Sure. Uh, d- did you have a favorite character from this bunch? At, at different times, I did. Uh, but no, I fell in love with all of them individually. Um, I re- I really liked each of them for what they brought to the story. Beth brought this psychological understanding of everything that is happening, almost a clinical view. And what's fascinating with her is when that clinical view snaps, when she becomes convinced that maybe this is not something that is understandable, it must be re it must be experienced again. And that everything she has learned maybe just isn't enough. And then with David, we see a man who has a family that he may lose because he because his coping mechanism doesn't allow him to truly surrender to people or open himself up and take that risk. And then with, um, and, and I associate with him because I'm a father of two children myself. And then with Deacon, Deacon was more fun. Uh, he, he lives a life of an indie musician and we see a lot of that world, which is just crazy and, unpredictable and hungry and just the way he likes it. And it provides him this ability to go on stage and become ritually crucified for an audience and bleed for them and let his soul become bared. 
And so those were more shouting and expressive parts of the book. And so I, I loved each character for what they brought to the story. Uh, but I didn't, I, I didn't favor any one over the others. And I was very careful not to do that because the readers judge you on everything you give them. And if you give them a, they may have a favorite character, but if you give them a weak character that they really don't like, then those are parts of the story that are a bit of a drag. Uh, multi-character stories are very challenging. First of all, one of the things that is really remarkable about, about this book is the way that the, the consistency of character between the, the young versions of these people and their adult versions that you map that across brilliantly it's really really consistent um secondly when it comes to deacon you talk about you know the parts of the book that sing and deacon is the musician now i cannot think of of any book i've read recently that that better articulates the experience of live music both as a performer and an audience member and those were by far i mean this is a podcast about horror but the, the, the parts of this book that I just could not get enough of were the parts where, where Deacon was performing. Um, and I think that might be to do with the fact that I, I have kind of turned live music into a talisman of the pandemic being over. Right. But when, when I get to go and see a band again and kind of get lost in that moment, that will, for me, mark the end of this horrendous period in time. But, but talking about how you write about, about live music, I, I want to just quote something here. Um, in what, This is a scene in which one of Deacon's bandmates is experimenting with the audio during the performance. And you write that, quote, Together with the rest of the band, she was hacking brains, triggering oxy oxytocin and adrenaline, inviting the audience to join an infinite flow, chasing the euphoric catharsis of falling in love whilst dying. That just captures for me the essence of what it is to being a big crowd full of people and 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 listen to it to a band you love. It seems to me that this is a book all about spiritual experience, and music is the the purest form of it that you that you depict in this book. Are you a, a musician yourself? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for your. For your kind words and not to pun, but it was music to my ears to hear it because um, that, you know, as an author, you have an intent with character and it's nice when it comes through. <laughs> it's nice to hear someone say, yeah, I got that. I, I understand you. And, but I uh, know I'm not a musician, um, uh, but, but I, I, what I wanted to do there with the music was, first of all, it allowed me to write dramatically for a part of uh, for one of the characters uh, who is very dramatic himself and and music is about expression so i focused on that and i also focused on the communal that sense of being in a crowd individually experiencing something while also experiencing it communally which is very religious and dive into that whole idea of music being a, a form of spiritual expression uh, that it is a used in, in many religions and it is a tool of worship and uh, a way of connecting with something bigger than you experiencing some kind of revealed truth, some gnosis. And so it's, it is, it was really for, uh, fascinating 
to be able to write about music, to connect it to not only the character, but also the theme of the book. And so when I was writing those scenes, I wasn't so much writing about music as I was writing about Deacon using music to cope and to express himself and for and to connect with an audience and to do something, some type of ritual suffering for them that they could engage in and experience themselves. And so I, I looked at um, all of the different ways of talking about music in that sense to, to find the right words that would have the most amount of punch and be most visceral for the reader. But then I was also very interested in music as a tool of worship and was able to do a lot of really fascinating research to go all, all the way back to the, to the shofar in, in the Old Testament that was a horn uh, that, that was uh, cl- the closest to expressing the name of God. And to look at everything from bull roars to digidurus and all sorts of different musical instruments that all had a religious significant significance throughout history. And there actually is a, a school of religion that seeks to find the, the name of God or the, the sound of God, more specifically, expressed through music and through singing. And I just thought that was really interesting and a great hook uh, for a deacon to be able to find his way back to the truth of Red Peak uh, through music. Yeah, the, the fun really does come across in those scenes. They're, 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 like I say, it's, it's the best evocation of music I've read in a long time. The stuff in the modern day is, is very up to the minute and it feels like, like a contemporary narrative. Um, but the flashback se- sections are, are set in 2005. Right. Um, which feels terrifyingly recent. That feels like like about two years ago to me, not, not let alone <laughs> 15. Um, but because of the the nature of the community and their isolation and their chosen lifestyle, it feels like it could almost be any time in the last 200 years. W- was that an intentional um, kind of disorientation you were going for? I, I would say it's it's um, more a byproduct than than something that's in the fore. Uh, the in, intent with the the past, the scenes happening in the past was to is was to show an isolated community and sort of show the good side of it, right? Of of, of a religious upbringing. Um, the, we certainly see the bad side of it or the the risk in the latter part of the book. But in the first half, I wanted to show what it was like that, that there was certainly fear and there was certainly gossip and things like that in this community, but there was also communal joy. There was a sense of community. Uh, there was a sense. We all believe the same thing. We all speak this, the same lingo. Uh, we all uh, worship the same God and we all help each other out. We're all in the same, somebody's always got your back. And there was something uh, wonderful about that for these children to be able to grow up in that type of environment. They, they look on that part of their childhood quite f- fondly. Uh, but because they have a religious upbringing and they're isolated and they believe that the God and the devil are, are very much present in the physical world, uh, there's, there's very little technology. And so they'll use things to grow food, but they, 
they really want to live a simple lifestyle close to the earth and without technology and so and pop culture and so uh, so it is it feels timeless i think as a byproduct as a result of that these are these are people living the way you know a very simple low tech uh lifestyle and when they go to red peak and they end up making a, a discovery about other communities that may have been there before them for similar reasons and with similar lifestyle, uh, it certainly feels like, you know, it, this is something that has happened before and may happen again and that it is timeless. Yeah, it, 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 your book read like a, a really nice uh, sort of contrast of um, a book by Adam Neville called Last Days. Oh, Adam Neville's wonderful, and and that is that's a great book. Oh, you've read it, yeah, yeah. That, oh, yeah, that's one of my favorites by him. Great novel, it terrified me. Um, and yours is a, yours is a much more, um, as I say, even-handed and almost benign treatment of whether you call it cults or communes or whatever. You you are much more benign and much more charitable towards those people. Where Adam's book is much more black and white and, and grueling at the start, at least. Yeah, in his book, the the cult is the is the monster element, and it, it introduces to the story as 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 a you know an an evil presence. Uh, whereas in this book, you're in the cult and you're seeing the transition. I, I felt that. Because the, the the group was front and center in my book, and 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 people were living in it, that if I if I made it like the the evil, if I made it more like the trope, I, I felt it would have been garish and exhausting because you were in it all the time. What works in, in Neville's book, I think, in my opinion, is that it is it it's introduced at the margins. When it comes, shows up, it shows up as a monster. And I think it really works that way. But I think if you were in that, his cult that he created, I think it would become tiring and, and it would become a completely different story. So he mm. used a cult the way he did for maximum effect. And, and it's a fantastic story. I highly recommend it. And then the children are at peak takes a totally different approach. It says, well, let's take, let's take a real group. And show its transition, and that villainous is in the interpretation. It's not a monster, and uh, and the monster there may be a monster, but it's external and it's an influence. There's an obvious difference in that Adam's novel is is much more kind of pulp horror, whereas yours is is really quite literary. I, I was surprised based upon the synopsis by quite how literary it was, um, and it's it's been called. I've seen a few books. It's been called a slow burner, which I always think can be a case of damning with faint praise. <laughs> um, I see it a little differently. So as I was reading it, I kind of experienced it in real time. So I expected this book to be horrible things happen in a cult. People go back to deal with it, you know, a la the kids in it. Um, and here's the, the horrible shit that happens to them again. Yeah. And as you're reading it, I was like, okay, I'm on, I'm on page 100 and they've not gone back yet. I'm on page 200. They've not gone back yet. And then it dawned on me that it's a book in which the journey is far more important than the destination, which I really, really liked. But I wonder, 
did you feel any pressure where you're like, you're like Christ, I've got to get them to this mountain soon. I, I, I've got to kind of bin some of these characters up and get them to the mountain. Or were you comfortable with it being the pace it was? Yeah, I was very comfortable with it. I mean, you, you have to move the story forward. You have to give the reader something on every page that keeps them reading. And so that was certainly my intent. Uh, but yeah, it, it, as far as when everything is revealed, I wasn't going to to blow that too early in the book. So we know something horrible is coming. And then it slowly builds and builds and builds and builds toward that until these things you see the details of how the what these things are and and how that happened if i put too much of that in the beginning i felt like i would have shot my wad if i put all of it throughout the entire book it would have been exhausting and it would have been a completely different book it wouldn't have been about character it would have been about events and those events would have been titillating but ultimately empty and so i wanted to take an approach where we see what is the aftermath or impact of something horrible that happens to people? And there's a psychological horror element there, especially as you, they, we start teasing out these memories, and then you see what happened that last night. And then as far as the kids are concerned, they're a vehicle for we can see like, hey, this was not so bad in the beginning. And, but you see how it gets bad piece by piece by piece. It's not like all of a sudden, bang, oh, it's all horrifying now because everybody went crazy. That, that didn't feel real or natural to me. I wanted the reader to say, you know what? I, I barely had to suspend my disbelief in this book. I, I really believe that this could have happened. I mean, there was a supernat- there's, a, there's a cosmic horror element that, of course, it, it required willing suspension disbelief. But the rest felt very natural to me. And that was the intent. I, that's what I wanted to have happen and and i think by teasing it out instead of boom right in the reader's face i think there was a lot more potential for psychological horror as well as more you know traditional uh horror and cosmic horror the cosmic horror is 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 so um it's so grandiose that i think if you were to just pursue that more than you do that would become exhausting to the reader Right. I, I struggle with cosmic horror for that very reason. I think it sometimes becomes unmoored from the the human. You know, it becomes entirely unmoored from the human experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that that then becomes becomes tiresome and kind of a kind of pointless exercise in how big can your interstellar leviathan be compared to the next guys. You know, right? Whereas this is much more grounded. Yes, and I wanted to. I think that there is value in dread. That that there that the dread when the, at the Leviathan, and I think that's something H.P. Lovecraft does perfectly. You you don't, you see they're they're very slow burn, but they're they're filled with dread, and that's what I wanted to do. And I think if I took inspiration from the uh, Netflix's The Haunting of Hill House, it was that idea of you can take your time with this and really show the impact of the horror on people, even before the horror is fully revealed. And so when the horror is fully revealed, you're like, wow, I totally get it. And I, and I understand because now I'm experiencing it too with these people I care about. And it makes a much bigger difference, I think, in the, in the, in the appreciation. Um, but yeah, for readers who are looking for something more titillating and they think they're going to get helter-skelter from this book, they may be disappointed. Uh, but for those looking for a literary horror experience with uh, with a 
with a with a uh, with a big horror payoff, I think they'll get it. I mean, dread is the the perfect word I think for this book because it's you know that they're going back to to Red Peak at some point, and you know that right. the the curtain's going to get drawn back, and, and what is it going to be? And and that there's that sense of kind of looming destiny over all the characters. Mm-hmm. But I saw one I saw one review that referred to the book's conclusion as being, you know, inevitable. And I think they meant it in a complimentary way, as in that sense of you know the inevitable confrontation with 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 destiny and with fate, etc. Right. But but to kind of take a semantic point there. I found the ending anything but inevitable. I actually found the ending downright shocking. But I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask a question now. And I'm going to word it very carefully so that I don't give anything away because I don't I don't want to spoil the you know the uh, the big reveal. But what I would ask you is: Is what awaits these characters on Red Peak fundamentally evil or divine? That is a matter of interpretation, and and I'm not being cute there uh that's that's intentional i'm always fascinated by the idea of you can have this but you have to do this and it's in your it's in human nature to want that and to justify doing anything to get it but it's horrible what you're going to do um to to, i guess it'd be better if i Maybe set an example. Uh, I, I wrote a novel a number of years ago for Simon and Schuster. It was called Suffer the Children. And in this novel, a parasite infects the world's children and it kills them and it brings them back. And so they're living corpses and they're vampires. They need, they need blood. And if they get, if they drink blood, they come back and become the children that they were exactly as they were before they died, only for a short time. Then they need more blood. And so for the, there's only so much blood in the world. And so for the, the parents, they have to make a decision. Do I suffer the children? Do I free them, let them go? Or do I do anything in my power as a parent out of the purest love in the universe to keep them alive as long as possible, which means I will do whatever it takes. I will take blood from myself and then I will take blood from you. And you and you and you. So I, that story started with the with the question based on the canard. I do anything for my kids. I put my arm in a shredder for my kids. And so the question was, okay, would you put someone else's arm in a shredder? <laughs> and how many arms would you put in a shredder? How many? <laughs> and so when when you faced with that question. So, you know, good horror holds up that fractured mirror to the human soul, right? When you ask that question, you're asking, the reader has to ask themselves the question, how far would I go? The monsters in the book aren't the kids, the vampires, they're the parents who will do anything for their kids. And they do it out of the purest love. And so I was really fascinated with that. And it's a real mind bender premise for the book. And it's the same thing with Red Peak. If a, if God said to, you're Abraham and God says to you, I will give you everything, but you have to sacrifice your son to me to prove your love because I want to be loved. Would you do it? And you're a fervent religious Christian, or maybe you're not. You're, you're, you're an atheist who's afraid of what comes after and 
but you want, you wish there was. And suddenly God appears and says, I will give you this, but you have to do this for me. What would you do? And so is that God asking you that? Is that God a good guy or a bad guy? That's really a matter of interpretation. A good guy because he's offering me everything. He's a bad guy because I have to destroy everything I love to get it, to get this amazing result. And so that, that, that I think is, is the, the fundamental question the reader will ask themselves at the end is, would I take a deal like that? And what does that say about you? What does that say about your relationship with the divine? What does that say about God? Um, those, those are all great things to think about, I think, when the, when the reader closes the covers. Well, the, the whole thing with the relationship with God, I mean, for, for the full disclosure, I'm a kind of fairly committed atheist. Mm-hmm. So I potentially had a different response to this book than, as you say, someone with, you know, with faith may have. And, and I, I underlined one section towards the end that I just think is a really, really pithy way of, of putting a lot of these themes, of articulating a lot of these themes. Because there is a, when, when the characters go back to Red Peak, they climb it and they, they walk into the top and there's a kind of sublime moment where they are, you know, they're, they're in awe of this mountain. And, and, and you write this, you write that, quote, the emptiness did not like being ignored. It demanded translation. It wanted meaning and could not exist without a human brain to create and complete it. Now, to me, that's a universal description of faith. Uh, it all stems from a human need to kind of plug the gaps in, in their understanding. Yes. But then again, I'm an atheist. And you seem to present it from the other side, which is not so much the human need to create a god, but more a, a god or entity that needs humans to define it. And I found that a really, really interesting concept to kind of try and get my head around. It, there's certainly a lot to chew on there, and you're you're now my ideal reader because you're getting everything I'm trying <laughs> I'm trying to say, and I love I love <laughs> hearing it. I'll take a review on, say, Amazon or Goodreads, where someone really gets what I'm trying to say. I don't care how many stars it is. I'll take that over every five star in the book. So so I'm really glad because I feel like we communicated, and I'm really happy to hear it. I'm, you you took it exactly how how I intended it, but the but the point is, it could be. It could go both ways. Uh, yes, God, a God may need humans to human worship to complete it uh, with with a- complete love, utter love, and and similarly, if there is no God, we may create one because humans don't like chaos, and we will attribute order to everything. If there's emptiness. That emptiness is is horrible. In fact, it is the source of cosmic horror, cosmic dread. That sense of emptiness. Um, it's the it's the foundation of the existential dread. That that there's nothing. And so the the uh, the mountain has has power to them because in that final those final scenes because of its emptiness because there's nothing there. It, 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 it screams for meaning and their brains respond to that. 
the, to to want to ascribe uh, meaning to it. So I, I think in in a relationship to the divine, uh, humans want to to ascribe the divine or 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 more generally meaning to chaos. Whereas if there is intelligence in the chaos, it it may want uh, observation in return and love. Well, that seems a lovely place to leave it. So to finish off, Craig, um, would you be happy to just to answer my rapid four questions that I ask each of my guests as a way to kind of build some cohesion amongst this? Absolutely. Yeah, I just like it to be your first thing that comes to mind. It's a bit of a bit of a more peppy way to end this than than, than musing about civil war in America. So, question one would be: What was your gateway to horror? Well, that, that would have to be zombie fiction, and uh, I read. Uh, Couple books um, in a in a genre I I always wanted to write in and uh, which was apocalyptic fiction. Found zombie fiction from uh, several terrific authors, notably David Moody, who who is a wonderful author living in the UK. That's the hater stuff, right? Yeah, he's fantastic. Um, question two: If you could recommend one novel that not by yourself um, to our audience, what would it be and why? I'd probably say The Power by Naomi Alderman. Uh, it's, it's got this fantastic premise. It's what if there were a, a nascent or dormant genetic ability among women that they could administer electric shocks through their hands. So they could start fires, inflict extreme pain. Um, they would suddenly become the stronger sex. And so what she explores in her book is through multiple points of view – how situations like in Saudi Arabia, where men are on top and women don't have any rights, that could change very quickly, and there could be revolution. And she has the this the courage at the end to say, "Well, maybe because women are now on top, they're acting like men used to act, and and now men are fighting for rights and fighting for equality and fighting for equal pay and things like that." And I, I just love the book because it's, it has this apocalyptic feel to it. And the reason I love apocalyptic fiction is that sense of zeitgeist, like with the pandemic or, you know, something big is happening and it's happening to all of us. We're all surviving this together. And there's so much uncertainty, so many ethical choices that must be made. It's just wonderful, wonderful stuff. And it's got this fantastic theme and the theme has courage. And I, I, so I would, I would recommend that book. I, I thought it was well executed, but a fantastic premise, really interesting conclusion, and and just uh, really thought provoking themes. I have me talking about it now, years later. Excellent. I always add these books that we mentioned to the show notes, so if anyone misses any of this, they can check it out there. But that's a great. I, I love that book too. That's a great recommendation. Yeah. Question three: What advice would you give to a fledgling horror author like myself? And when answering that question, I would have to say. Well, geez, how can I tell people to do what I did? Because I fell up the stairs, you know, is the closest <laughs> analogy I can think of. And how do you tell someone how you fell up the stairs? Uh, it's really just, I did stuff, one thing worked out, and when one thing worked out, it led to another thing that worked out and led to another thing that worked out and so on. And so I guess the only advice I could give people that, to, that, that this, the bottom line of all this is to 
work as hard as you can be produce, you know, produce as much work as you can get it out there, be fearless network to, to hopefully cultivate, uh, fertilize more opportunities for yourself to, to be seen. And then, and then, then trust to the X factor and the X factor is having the right book at the right place at the right time, whether it's for a reader or for an editor or a marketplace. Oh, one thing before I go, I always kind of give these shows a, every episode I give, I give a kind of whimsical title based upon things we've discussed in the conversation. Sure. Your episode is definitely going to be called Craig D. Louis and how many arms would you put in that shredder? <laughs> I love it. Thanks for your time and thanks for talking scared. Oh, thank you. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. I don't know if it came across in that interview, but I found The Children of Red Peak a much better book than I expected. I came to it thinking it would be a kind of typical cult novel, you know, a bit of weirdness, some creepy sex, and a lot of escalating cruel violence. Well, it is weird, and it's certainly cruel, and there is a bit of sex, but as you can tell from our conversation, it's about a lot more than that. The phrase slow burn gets thrown around a lot and it, it does turn some people off. And I, I understand that, you know, you, everyone works hard. You've only got so many hours in the day. You want a book that's going to get to the point. But with some books, it really is about the journey, not the destination. And this is one of them. Take your time with it. If it helps, it, it reads like an old school Stephen King novel where the small moments in people's lives add together to make the big scary things in the plot line a lot more meaningful than they would be otherwise. It has left me asking myself some questions too, such as, what is spirituality? And also, how many arms would I stick in a shredder for my family? Now that I've got Ted the puppy, the answer is probably quite a lot more than at any point previously. But it's never good to commit these things to tape, so I'll just leave it there. <laughs> the Children of Red Peak was published yesterday, November 17th from Red Hook Books. And we mentioned a good few other books this week, quite a few of which I haven't read, which makes a change. So Craig mentioned Kin by Keelan Patrick Burke, which is a novel that by the sounds of things shakes the tried and tested formula of, you know, the cannibal murderous family and, and the final girl on its head. It's got some great reviews on Goodreads and Amazon and, and other trade magazines. So it's one that I do want to give a try when I can ever find the time. Maybe I'll, you know, hope to hopefully get Keelan on the show at some point to discuss it. Craig also mentioned Hater by David Moody, which is a, a, a British zombie horror novel that gets great press. Again, it's not one that I've read, but I do want to read it because there isn't enough zombie stuff set in Britain, even though, you know, our, our grey and dismal landscape does make, you know, a good backdrop for, for that kind of thing. So yeah, Hater by David Moody. Give it a try. Let, let me know what you think. Obviously, Craig mentioned The Power by Naomi Alderman, and I don't need to go any further into that because Craig gave a great rundown of, of it. It's a great novel. It, it, it's in the vein of something like The Handmaid's Tale, but it's a lot cheekier, I would say, in, in its take on gender politics. It's a really, really good book. It's not horror, but it has some, some quite dark points to make about the world. One that I mentioned was Last Days by Adam Neville. Adam Neville, for me, probably the best 
British author of horror working today. He's the, one of the few authors who has genuinely terrified me. Two of his books, one, Apartment 16, and this one, Last Days, gave me trouble sleeping. It's quite a hard thing to do in prose. It's just brilliant. Give it a go. And lastly, we mentioned It by Stephen King in passing. I won't go into it. It's my favourite novel. There'll be time in the future to come back to it again and again and again. One day I hope to do a deep dive into it when I'm speaking to somebody pertinent. <coughs> Stephen King, I'm talking to you. Yeah, if you haven't read it, go and read it. <laughs> so, I'm always continually looking to expand the audience. Those of you who come back week after week, and there are, are a good few of you now, and yes, I can locate you in my stats. Um, if you like the show, please stick a review on Apple Podcasts. I've had a few, but I really need more if I'm going to get this show some some real visibility. If you don't use Apple products to listen, then I also appreciate any shares, likes, or retweets on social media. Thanks for those who already have engaged. There's been a good bit of traction on Instagram this week, which is helping me come to terms with setting that account up and giving Zuckerberg, you know, my data. If you want to find the show on Twitter, it's at TalkScaredPod. And we're on Instagram at Talking underscore Scared underscore Pod. You can email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. And thanks for those who have already. Listener emails light up my week. In the next episode, I'm, I'm back with someone who is a huge voice in the horror podcasting world and who has just turned his hand to novel writing. And I say a huge voice because, you know, you may well recognise his voice, if not his real name. But until then, make yourself a wicker man, avoid the bees, don't talk to black goats and don't drink the Kool-Aid. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared.